Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral, who is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, and he is also the Executive Director of Cyber Solarium uh, 2.0, the successor of the highly successful Cyberspace Solarium uh, Commission. Mark, it's always great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Bogo. Pleasure. And I should uh, note that our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer, he's also the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm, is going to be joining us uh, later with Mark uh, to discuss uh, the first hearing of the House uh, Select China uh, Committee uh, that met uh, prime time yesterday. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, we want to l- get into a little bit of that, which we will discuss in greater detail, obviously, on the Washington Roundtable uh, on uh, Friday. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security not only sponsors our weekly cyber report, but our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Um, Mark, uh, start us off. Uh, you know, we're going to get into the uh, the China uh, part of the discussion uh, in a moment, not something we would do on the cyber report, but it is all intertwined because cyber uh, did feature prominently in the discussion yesterday. Talk to us about the national cyber strategy. The administration is releasing it uh, tomorrow. Uh, a lot of anticipation on this, and we've had sort of a countdown, and folks have been talking to us about it. Uh, you're closer to it than almost anybody I know. What is it we're going to be hearing uh, tomorrow from the administration? Well, listen, I'm excited to um, to have the strategy come out. I think it'll be you know headlined by Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, and Kemba Waldron, our national cyber director. Uh, and and I think that the two of them are, are going to tell us um, a, a story that we've heard a lot from uh, Chris, Chris Inglis, the recently departed national cyber director, which is that we have to do more to make the defense, the cyber defense more effective. We have to make it, we have to be able to impose more costs on people who, who are attacking our systems, um, that we can't rely totally on offensive capability uh, to deter adversaries or prevent adversary action, but we actually have to defend our systems. And I think it'll spend a lot of time talking about how the federal government needs to defend its systems, which is absolutely a primary assignment of the National Cyber Director, along with the Office of Management and Budget and all the federal agencies. But those 101 federal agencies have to defend themselves. And not all of them have the deep pocket budgets of DOD. So this is harder than it sounds. And the second thing to say is, look, we have to work harder to prevent the, to help the private sector uh, protect itself. And, and that the cyber resilience you know, is, is something that everyone needs to contribute to. And that the, we're going to expect more from our software providers. We're going to expect more from our critical infrastructure providers. And we're going to expect more from the federal government. And very specifically, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about how they approach resilience. I think, having listened to Director Inglis and now Acting Director Walden in the past, I think it's highly likely that we're going to we're going to need to emphasize the need for um, you know agreed to standards or regulations, along with incentivization to secure our critical infrastructure. And, and I'm especially uh, interested in hearing which infrastructures. Uh, we, we consider the most important to this uh, building resilience. I suspect it's going to be cloud computing. Right. I think we're at that point now where so many companies 
so many utilities are moving in, into cloud um, environments that it's imperative that those cloud security providers provide a minimum level of security and, and that, that the government agrees with, right? And look, I'm not talking about Vic's dry cleaner here. I'm talking about your electrical power distribution, your water, your transportation, right. your financial services. They've got to be at a reasonable level of security at all times. Um, and, and what does this mean? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned cloud. I mean, I, I remember Bill Lynn, uh, when he was Deputy Defense Secretary, right, was talking about the importance of the cloud and migrating uh, a lot of DoD functions to the cloud, both secure the individual data while also securing uh, the, the cloud. Uh, we've heard uh, uh, defense intellectuals like Dave Deptula uh, of the Mitchell Institute talk about the importance of cloud combat and how the JADC2 challenge, for example, the Joint All Domain Command and Control Challenge, uh, can be addressed in part through better cloud, more secure and resilient cloud networks, right? So this has clearly military implications as well, not just for power companies or water companies. What are some of the things that have to happen to the cloud infrastructure, Mark? Like, what does that mean for the Amazons, the Googles, and everybody else, right? Who, you know, the IBMs of the world who have been dramatically growing their cloud capabilities? Well, I mean, you're exactly right. This has a DOD um, emphasis in it. In fact, I would say the DOD was pioneering cloud before we called it cloud. You know, when I think back to something called cooperative engagement capability, which was JADC2 before we thought of the acronym JADC2, you know, uh, real-time sharing of um, sensor and sh- you know, sensor data, firing quality track data between shooters. You know, the Navy had that over 30 years ago. Um, we couldn't convince the other services to get in there, but, you know, we had this cloud. So the idea that you can more effectively operate with, with, the, with the highest quality shared data is a known known. And, and we've got to move to that. Now, the problem we have is we all buy into the security of that product you move into. And so whether it's in the DOD or in the private sector or in our critical infrastructures, we have to ensure that there's a, that the appropriate level of security, third party checked, constant vigilance for, um, for uh, anomalous activity going on, um, understanding of what product you're bringing into your cloud, what's the security of that product coming in, you know, from a secondary or tertiary vendor. You know, we've got to hold, you know, in the end, we've got to hold these cloud service providers accountable. And we have to, you know, and at the same time, we have to recognize that they, they are a profit-making industry. So that there will be a cost to security. But I, you know, that cost has got to be, you know, reasonable by being spread across thousands of uh, thousands of different um, operators. The the budget uh, is uh, going to be coming out on March the 9th. Um, a lot of anticipation. Um, it certainly looks like we're going to have some more uh, defense spending. Um, you have given us sort of a series of updates on what you think is going to be in this upcoming budget. Cyber-wise, we now will have a national cyber strategy. Uh, this is going to be the opportunity uh for the administration to to give it to give it teeth right so it goes from policy to execution um and there's a sense that mark this is among the most important budgets that we're going to see if we're going to deter china on any reasonable scale and indeed uh, continue to build capabilities that are useful not just for china but also uh uh against russia um walk us through what your expectations are uh for the budget what we're going to see uh particularly from a cyber standpoint but other things that you're going to be looking for as well against which you'll be judging uh, this uh, spending request. Thanks, it is a big one. And it's a big one in the cyber world and certainly a big one in the China world. In, in the cyber world, what I'll be taking a look at is, you know, in, in fiscal, a year ago, we had a, a, a collision of an appropriations bill and a president's budget 
coming out a week apart back last last March, February, March. And as a result, the president's bill for cyber, like for CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, didn't reflect all the additions Congress had done. So when Congress took the president's bill to restore the base that they had just done, they had to increase it again. So it, we ended up with a uh, fiscal year 23 budget of almost $2.9 billion for CISA. I'm hoping as this fiscal year 24 budget comes in, the, uh, the CISA and OMB have accounted for all the, um, the base that's established by Congress in the 23 budget, and then whatever small incremental changes they needed are in there. Look, CISA has grown from 1.4 billion five years ago to 2.9 billion today, a more than doubling, which is, an which is really um, you know, a compliment to Chris Krebs, Jenny's, to the leaders of CISA, but also to representatives like Jim Langevin, and Dutch Russellsberger, who really focused on this over the last few years, and to John Katko from the Republican side who focused on it. So I think, you know, we, we've got CISA in a good place. I want to see if the budget's right. I want to see if programs that Congress has told them to fund, like the Cybersecurity Education Training Assistance Program, are funded, or do they do this kind of churlish thing where they zero out programs they know Congress likes, hoping for Congress to add the money back in. You know, I want a big boy budget, right? An, an adult mature budget that reflects an agency that's transitioning you know, at the four or five year point from out of being a startup. One other thing is I wanna see, Congress ordered them to do a force structure assessment two years ago. I'm told it's done. I'm told it informed the FY24 budget. I wanna see what that means. Do they have the, are they doing personnel movements within the budget to organize themselves properly for the future threat we face? So I think this CISA, this fiscal year 24 budget from CISA has the, has the uh, you know, may, has opportunity to really be kind of a groundbreaking budget that's, that normalizes things at the right level with the right personnel. So I'll be looking for that. Um, two other places I'll be looking is DOD's budget, making sure cyber command's getting funded. I don't expect to see the kind of growth in the, in the on-net operators that I think we need. I think the only way that comes about is, is um, you know, if, if the secretary really lays into the services or you were to create a cyber force, in which case you'd set yourself to the proper uh, uh, numbers. Um, and then the third place I'm looking is in the State Department budget. Is there enough money in there for cyber capacity building? We saw how helpful that was in Ukraine from 2017 to 2020. I mean, it wasn't determinative, but it was contributory and, and it funded some of our best private sector companies being over there. And so I want to make sure, I'm hoping that that same cyber capacity building thought process is being applied to other um, allies and partners who are under duress you know, from authoritarian regimes. So those are kind of three areas in CISA, DOD, and State Department where I'm looking for improvements. Russia has loomed large, um, and it looks like uh, some of the lessons of Russia will be reflected uh, in this budget, certainly on the munitions side of things, uh, to increase uh, production rates. I mean, I think the Army is, each of the services is working uh, in their own way. Uh, Doug Bush, the Army Acquisition Executive, uh, has said that we're going to get to 90,000 rounds a month, which, which will be good, uh, but probably not until 2024. Walk us through the sort of the cyber lessons uh, from Russia's war on, on Ukraine. Um, we have been defending forward, but certain attacks uh, have been going through. Uh, there are folks who are having, still having their Twitter account hacks, although that could be in part because, you know, um, Elon Musk's ownership has reduced personnel levels to the point where outages uh, can't be quickly addressed. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying, you know, if you don't have the bodies, you, you can't, you, you can't, you might not be able to get the work done. 
What are some of the most important lessons cyber-wise a year into Russia's war on Ukraine that, that should be shaping us? What, what are wins? What are mixed results? What are successes? What are losses? I think, you know, we have to be careful here getting too many lessons learned, only because I do think the Russian effort was really hampered. Their cyber uh, effort as it contributed to the kinetic attack was hampered by the same sort of um, lack of, of uh, warning that I think their, lar- their, their, the Russian army writ large, you know, suffered from. They didn't quite understand w- what was going to happen. And then secondly, really hampered by the fact that they thought this was a three to five day campaign. And cyber is one of those things that you can't, you know, let's say you say it's a three to five uh, day campaign, um, um, you know, and uh, if you, know, you think it's a three to five day campaign, um, you only execute 40, 50 kind of plans. If it turns out to be a 30 to 60 day campaign, you need to have been writing those, those cyber um, targeting packages six to nine to 12 to 18 months ahead of time. So if you misjudge that, um, you don't have like a week two, week three, week four plan. You basically have a one week plan and then you got to reconstitute yourself. And that's what happened. Their cyber was very effective on night one, took out Viaset, did some other things. But really they didn't have the kind of, you know, detailed targeting efforts going on for weeks and months after that. I think they are reloading and I think you'll see more cyber effective cyber at the tactical operational level in Ukraine uh, from the Russians. But we're now at the point where the Ukrainians have, you know, double and triple down on their cyber defense capabilities, the agility of their systems, the ability to move back and forth between automated to manual systems, you know, the redundancy and, re- and reliability that, that they've demonstrated throughout their infrastructure is almost jaw dropping. So I, I don't know that cyber will ever have the effect we expected um, tactically or operationally in Ukraine. And one other thing I'd say is we've learned a lesson about, you know, the, the strategic impact. Why has Russia not attacked Western Europe and, and the United States? I still, and look, we know they can. The Russian SVR, you know, follow on to the KGB, was dancing through our systems 18 months ago, you know, during solar wind. So they have skill. The reason, and we've acknowledged that they've installed malware in many of our infrastructures. The reason we haven't seen these attacks is I think we haven't tripped whatever wire it is and Vladimir Putin, where he uses this kind of strategic effect against Western Europe and the United States. We may get closer if his economy suffers, but look, his economy only suffered a 2% GDP reduction last year, and they're estimated to have a 1% growth this year. I just don't think our sanctions, U.S. sanctions have been tough. I think the European sanctions have been tempered. And as a result, we really haven't seen that. And they've been uh, you know, relieved by Indian and Chinese actions and others. Um, you know, if that were to change, if there were to be significant hurt applied to the Russian economy, I do believe we would see an attack on Western European or United States critical infrastructure. Uh, but uh, we've we've said that that would be causes belli, uh, right? If if that happens, so that's certainly uh, going to be interesting. Uh, and an- the other piece of it is right. I mean, Chris Ray. Uh, did make the announcement that the United States last year, right, had done an extraordinary operation worldwide to clean up malware uh, from uh, critical networks, right? I mean, so th- there is a sense that we have addressed part of that challenge, right? But you're saying that it's a problem that still remains, however much we may have accomplished. I, I agree. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. I think that there's a deterrent effect here where we have said, hey, if you do this, you'll you'll be potentially bringing in our cost imposition capabilities back on you. And, you know, 
nothing would make uh, Senator Angus King happier than to hear that deterrence was working at that level. Um, but secondly, I, I think, you know, shields up matters somewhat. Um, you know, that's CISA's policy of like, hey, get your, re, you know, set your rear stat to slightly more security. Um, the, the, the only challenge I'd say was if you had crap cybersecurity before February 24th of 2022, you know, you didn't have a rheostat to turn up. I hope this constant, you know, um, warning from CISA is driving more infrastructure companies to increase their cybersecurity. I suspect all the ransomware attacks are definitely having that impact, you know, over the last three to four years. So I think we're raising our overall cybersecurity. We're not there. We're not there. Many infrastructures are still hurting, but I do think we're in better shape. And I think there's a reasonable deterrent effect out there. Uh, you know, as, as they say, from your mouth uh, to God's uh, ears. Um, uh, let me uh, take you to Jenny Shirley uh, and the China part of the discussion. Obviously, she's uh, the head of uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity uh, Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, she has said that in the event of a Taiwan crisis, uh, China uh, will attack critical uh, U.S. Uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, we heard that also in uh, the hearing yesterday uh, 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 with uh, Chairman Gallagher and Ranking Member uh, Raja uh, Krishnamurthy. Walk us through what Jen is talking about, um, what it means, and what are the things that we need to be ready to do? Uh, because, you know, again, like the Chinese, the Russians are a persistent, excuse me, the Chinese are a persistent threat. Um, and they do have a lot of capability in part because they have a lot of people who are dedicated uh, to, to the job and have been mapping our networks, uh, I think, exquisitely uh, to be able to cause uh, potential damage. Walk us through what she means by that. Well, you, you described it very well, Bago. And what I'll tell you is, is that we have a cyber resilience challenge, right? What's going on right now is, and we need cyber resilience. It, it, when you think very specifically in a Taiwan sense, if there's a crisis with Taiwan, one of the most important elements to fight, you know, in a final last ditch attempt to deter them or in an effort to defeat them, we're going to have to move a lot of military, you know, we're going to have to exercise a lot of military mobility, air, rail, trans, you know, truck, eventually shipboard from ports. And all of those systems um, are lack the resilience we need to, to withstand a Chinese cyber attack. They will be, look, do I believe that inside a classified DOD system at Transcom, they're probably secure, yes. But the reality is Transcom, the U.S. Transportation Command, you know, in order to execute our, our, our uh, force flow, relies heavily on private sector rail, air, and eventually, you know, and, and truck transport, and, um, and then port systems that are dual use, you know, you private and civilian. All of those are vulnerable to Chinese uh, um, cyber malicious activity. And if I were China, I'd be sending strong signals to the United States. Beyond that, our, our economy is obviously vulnerable. You know, our, and I don't think necessarily our financial services are most, our most um, you know, uh, largest banks. They spend almost a billion dollars a year on cybersecurity each. Um, it's not them, but it's the electrical power grids that service them, the water systems that service them, healthcare systems that service them. They are all vulnerable. So our military mobility, our economic productivity, and of course our public health and safety, China can attack any of these in order to send strong signals to the United States, this is not the fight you wanna have, right? And if we're ignoring that signal, then to actually degrade our 
you know, our military mobility and our economic productivity to worsen our war, our, our war effort. Um, so, you know, Bob, she's right. Um, um, you know, uh, Mike Gallagher's talked about this for two years now in the Cyberspace Learning Commission and in his various um, House of Representatives positions. I, I, there's a number of uh, Democrats that have spoken to this as well. You know, um, Representative Moulton and others. Um, I think Ro Khanna has spoken to this and, and you know, he's chairman with, he, he is along with Representative Gallagher, the chairman and ranking of the Cyber uh, Committee inside the House Armed Services Committee. So on a bipartisan, bicameral, executive branch and legislative branch level, we absolutely understand this risk and it's going to take a concerted national effort to improve our cyber resilience. Um, let me uh, um, ask you uh, about uh, H-bombs and S-bombs, right? Both hardware and software, bills of origin and materials. It's something that um, the folks uh, from our sponsors, Fortress Information Security, have joined us over years uh, to discuss this issue. Uh, just really quickly, what's the progress you expect to make and the progress we need to make, uh, Mark, because there's questionable software across government, industry, military, and same on the hardware side of things, where we have vulnerabilities, right? The transcom network might be secure, but we're not entirely sure whether there might not be some coding or something else that's problematic somewhere in these ecosystems. Um, you know, we've been talking about this for many, many, many years, right? Are, yes. are we making the kind of progress we need to be making, especially in light of the administration's policies on this? So we're definitely having the right conversations now. There's a much more, a, a broader understanding of the absolute vulnerability you have in, in, um, in not understanding, you know, the, the origin story of your software or secondary and tertiary parts of your hardware. And so there's a much greater recognition that you have to understand this. You have to have the pedigree of these systems available, you know, for several reasons. One, so you can understand the risk when you're installing it and using it, you know, as an operator. But secondly, if there is a detected flaw, so that you can rapidly identify all the places that have the software or hardware. So that's critical. I think the fastest way we're gonna attack it is through the Department of Defense. Not surprisingly, it's where the money is. And secondly, it's where they have the best contractual through DFARS, the, the defense um, acquisition programs and contracting programs. They have the most comprehensive rule sets and relationships with the private sector. And not surprisingly, DOD buys more than half of all the kit bought by the federal government every year. So, I mean, that's the right place to go. I think the department will take the lead on it. They're also probably the most cybersecurity competent department, you know, outside of maybe the IC and, and elements of CISA maybe, but, you know, they're, they're broadly very competent on cyber. They have the contractual tools. They have an understanding of the threat. So I, I think you're going to see SBOM and, and to a, I think a lesser degree initially, HBOM issues get tackled and, and, and get solved. And also, if it's ubiquitous enough in DFARS, in these defense contracts, it starts to just become a, you know, a, a known cost of doing business for these companies, whether they're working with the Department of Defense, other federal agencies, or the private, broadly private sector and critical infrastructure. So you're going to see progress. Not as fast as if it was like a, congrat, a, a legal edict, but I think you're going to see it over the next two to three years. I don't want to have uh, hit squads come after you. Uh, Jenny surely also discussed liability. Just give us the 15 second version of how we need to think about liability in, in cyber. So we do, we have to think about liability in two ways. One that makes 
big business happy and one that makes big business sad. One of them is, look, if you need to hold the, the, final, the final goods assemblers accountable for the, for the cybersecurity flaws in their systems, as long as they're updating software, they need to be, um, you know, they need to be making sure that they're identifying all the cybersecurity flaws and providing timely and useful patches. You should be accountable. You know, we need to move the burden of, of removing risk up the supply chain to the software developers and providers. Now that's the part that makes business sad. The part that makes them happy is I also think we need liability protection. That if you're one of the most important national critical infrastructures and you're spending the money, you're meeting the government standards and you're having third-party assessments that the government can look at, that you would get some kind of liability protection. We call this systemically important critical infrastructure. Jen Easley calls it systemically important entities. But in both cases, you need liability protection from Congress. The big business likes that. So between those two efforts, I think if we could get a lot of liability done this year, you know, we could keep everyone sort of happy. I want to uh, welcome our uh, producer, Chris Cervello, uh, to the program. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Baga. Mark, uh, start us off on what the key takeaways from this uh, hearing were. Uh, Mike Gallagher uh, and Raja Krishnamurthy uh, really struck a very bipartisan tone. Uh, that's something that we were hearing uh, from uh, Mike from the very outset, that it's, it's critically important for us to get this right. It was supposed to be a primetime address to be able to get to the people. Uh, unfortunately, that was not the case. We heard from Matt Pottinger and H.R. McMaster, uh, both real uh, tough and thoughtful folks uh, from uh, the Trump administration. Uh, we heard from uh, Scott Paul, uh, the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And we also heard uh, from Tong Yi, somebody who had uh, uh, suffered uh, from uh, Chinese uh, uh, state brutality uh, at the hands of the, of the Chinese Communist Party. Walk us through what some of the key messages were, because if you were a China hand, you'd heard all this before, even if it was presented, you know, sort of like, right, if you wanted a crash course, this was three hours of bipartisan education on, on where we stand. What were the, the standouts for you? I, I think you're exactly right. It was the bipartisanship. I think almost universally in there, there was an understanding of the of the risk and the challenges we face in, in China. The second part was just the comprehensive nature of this. It's easy, you know, to, you know, for us who work in the military uh, domain to think, boy, we got a big military challenge with China, and we do. But there's an economic challenge here. There's a cultural diplomatic challenge. There's a human, a significant human rights interest that one of the witnesses was really strong on. You know, you really could, you know, you can see that this is a, you know, a comprehensive challenge to the United States from China, and, and I'm not even bringing up the, the, you know, the problems we have in our education, our universities, you know, the supposed Chinese police, unofficial police stations in our country. You know, there's those cultural issues as well. But I will tell you, they hit the idea of comprehensive. They hit the idea on on the being across the whole diplomatic, uh, military, and economic um, uh, waterfront. And and I did I did really like that that. Uh, that um, all, almost every member who spoke really was preaching from the same hymnal. And, and that's important because we've got a lot of work to do. There's a authorization work to do and there's appropriation work to do. And this committee won't do much of that, right? It doesn't have those authorities. Its job is to surface issues, to um, make recommendations, but the committees of um, jurisdiction, armed services, financial services, uh, foreign affairs, uh, they're the ones that are going to and they're going to have to go uh, go tackle these issues, and uh, and so having the members who are all members of these different committees 
kind of uh, in a consistent voice, it's important as they go back to those committees and execute what I hope is, is bipartisan legislation to make us more secure. Chris, uh, let me bring you uh, into this, right? From a messaging perspective, the idea was to hit primetime TV. Uh, unfortunately, no network carried it, although if you were listening to C-SPAN radio, you would have heard it. Uh, if you could find the link, it was great, and hopefully people will play it on, on replay. Uh, the feed I was watching when it started was about 200 people, although by the end of it, when you added CNBC, Fox, and everybody else, it, it did get into uh, bigger bigger numbers. From your standpoint, what were the messages, and when was it, unfortunately, you know, preaching to the choir as opposed to making that broader national case, even though Mike and Roger really have been out there working hard to try to tell the story of the committee and why this is not, you know, this is not a racist endeavor, nor is this, you know, a, a Republican. Nobody's trying to make anybody look bad at the end of the day. Yeah, I think um, Admiral Montgomery did a good job of sort of laying out the the key points. I, I agree with all those. I, I think they have some PR work to do. I mean, it would have been great if, um, you, you know, yesterday's uh, or last night's hearing was given the same amount of coverage as the January 6th hearings or as a Supreme Court um, nomination hearing. But but we knew that wasn't going to happen, right? I mean, we're just not there. And, and I'm not sure that um, either the chairman or the ranking member want it to get that level of attention. I think they're afraid. If you look at, you know, what they said on Face the Nation on Sunday, um, you, you know, Gallagher mentioned uh, that he doesn't want to turn this committee into, you know, the son of Joseph McCarthy, who, who happens to be buried in his home district, you know, that that's not what he's looking to do. He's not looking to raise it to that level, but they have to find the right, uh, I think, public uh, level for this discourse. They have to find the, the right way to get enough audiences and enough of the special interest. They have to get their attention, maybe shame at some point, but they, you know, but keep it from going the direction that Admiral Montgomery w warned about. Um, so I would say, you know, a, a for effort, probably a C plus on delivery for their first hearing. Um, but I think they have a lot. They know they have a lot of work to do, and there'll be a lot more opportunities uh, over the next two years. I will just say this. I think it's okay. I mean, the bipartisan tone, even where there are disagreements in terms of where one side wants to focus more on national security and maybe the other side wants to focus more on economic security and uh, the economic levers uh, and entanglements that we have with China. I think it's okay to have that um, disagreement and to have that discussion publicly because I think it really um, informs and will um, demonstrate just how much work we have to do to really compete with China across all you know el elements of government. It's not just a military issue. It's not just an economic issue. It's not just a, a social and cultural issue. It, it, it goes across all those lines. I was talking to an overseas friend, uh, reminding them that actually for those of us who've called for action on this for a long time, and the three of us, I think, fall in that category. On the one hand, you're disappointed it's not moving fast enough. On the other hand, it's actually moving a lot more quickly than we might imagine. Very quickly from both of you, is the ball moving as fast as it needs to? And are we getting to that self-interest part of it? At the end of the day, there are companies that have seen a surge in their products that are being ordered by countries that are obviously, you know, buying breast milk pumps or, you know, washing machines in order to send them to Russia to turn into weapons to use against Ukrainians, right, to circumvent sanctions. And yet there are companies that are like, hey, we've seen a surge. And, you know, it's like, OK, well, 
Yeah, you have. So how do we align uh, the, these interests really quickly, Mark, and then Chris? All right. So I'll just say, you know, I agree with, with your assessment that, you know, it's uh, I'm thrilled to see something. I'm disappointed to not see everything. So a great example is we authorize $2 million in financial in uh, FMF grants for Taiwan. We authorized $300 million in, in pre-munition stowage. Um, those were not appropriated, right? Um, and that's that's frustrating. Now, the appropriations authorizations were one week apart last year. We now have a new DOD budget coming on March 9th that I hope, and, and State Department budget, that reflect those, you know, those laws. If they don't, then I hope Congress adds the money in. Um, and the, the DOD money will be easy. The FMF money will be hard because the State Department. And, and I'll go one further thing and tell you, you know, I want to see, we authorized, directed that, that the, the, United, the Department of Defense conduct, you know, operational exercises with, the, with our Taiwan counterparts. Um, you know, they have about nine months to get that going. We need to see that. Those are the critical steps. We finally have movement after years of, of sense of Congress statements. We have direction from Congress. And we've got to make sure that direction is now executed over the next 18 to 24 months. I would like to see um, over you, you know the next couple of months. I, I would like to see sort of whether it's explicit or implicit lines of effort across um, you know the military, uh, like Admiral um, Montgomery talked about uh, culture and society, like Gallagher talked about on Face the Nation, where you know you you want to talk to the NBA and other multinational corporations like Disney and and get to the heart of why they have been publicly supportive of China. I think I, I'd like to see lines of effort in terms of how you're going to deal with business. So, I mean, I would like to see this kind of, you know, the committee talk about all of these things across a, a litany of lines of effort that show, again, one, the, the immediate threat, which is probably, you, you know, the Taiwan and South China Sea threat, and then how we go about disentangling, uh, you know, U.S. culture and U.S. economic interests from the Chinese and, and as a way of, you know, them being a silent influencer, or in some cases, a not so silent influencer on the policies and the endeavors that that we undertake. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I mean, I, I'm encouraged. Um, I, I would just like to see them do more publicly so that it can bring more people under the tent of, of their effort. Admiral, before we go, I, I actually have, have one question. Uh, you, you were there at the inception and, and through the successes of the uh, of the Cyber Solarium Commission, um, the most recent, uh, I guess, bipartisan success on a very important national security issue what lessons or advice would you give to the China Commission from your experience with the Solarium? Well, thanks, Chris. That's that's a great point. Uh, number one, you got to keep it bipartisan. Number two, um, try your hardest to keep in the lanes of the jurisdiction of each of the committees so that you don't get out of there. When you try to do these broad brush things across four or five committees, it ends up getting weakened and I don't want to say dumbed down, but you know, lowest common denominator. So keep yourself focused on the on what you want to get done keep it as much as you can in one or two committees and keep it bipartisan. And you can get a lot done on an issue like this where you clearly have bicameral, uh, bipartisan um, support. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We started with the cyber program, but I thought it was important to get a recap uh, from uh, both of you. And as I said, we're gonna discuss this in greater detail uh, on uh, the Washington Roundtable on Friday. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. Thanks, Vago.